You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, we have two special guests, one returning. We have Ryan Graves, call collector. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. All right, we also have a new guest, which a lot of you probably know know of him. Uh, this is John Stevens of RNT Calls and Jay Stevens Calls. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also, John is a call collector. Do you collect decoys or just calls? It's probably easier to eliminate what I don't collect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a collector. For, yeah, I've been a collector since a kid. I've collected everything from dust to stamps to. I mean, I don't know what it is. I think it's just a genetic thing. But I, I, may, I mainly so. a, a duck calls, mainly duck calls. But I do have an interest in decoys, and I do own a few. Yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to learn a little bit about them. Uh, yeah. So it's it's interesting just because. Uh, how much it is a part of waterfowl right. and the tradition and the craftsmanship. So I enjoy that aspect of it. Do you find it hard? Because I find this hard. We don't really have a decoy maker in our area for Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, this like Mississippi Delta area. Do you find it hard picking what to collect because you don't have that history connection to kind of jump off of? Well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like duck calls. When I started duck calls, I was going to just um, try to focus on one thing. And then I figured out real fast that 
I, since I like to collect, that wasn't going to work for me. So, um, I, you know, I try to, at first with decoys, I was going to collect decoys that were actually duck call makers um, okay. that did both just because yeah, I thought yeah, that yeah. had a connection. And then that just opened the door to, you know, right. seeing other decoys. And so now I kind of do it on based on what I like and what I can afford, you yeah. know, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I always find that interesting and because um, we don't, we have such a, we're kind of in a desert of decoys down here. Where they're all over the country, but not in this yeah, very ducky area of the country. That's always fascinated me too. Why we don't? There's a we have a bunch of different reasons. You know, yeah. I, I think it's because there's such a focus on calls and uh, you know and flooded timber. But whatever they just the didn't reason need is, them, I guess uh, that's the only thing I can come up with is they just didn't need them as much. Yeah, and I guess really, Ryan, isn't the only ones really actually moved here? <laughs> yeah, decoy makers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know the. I mean, you know, early on, you know, um, Mississippi did have like a, a strong decoy. Well, that's South you know, Mississippi, Mark, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah it would have been Pascagoula, or, you know, I'm sure I butchered that. Yeah, Pascagoula, you know, you're right. Pascagoula, but there were so many um, decoy factories there back in the day. Yeah. And like I say, and that's where, um, you know, that's where Charles Grubbs, when he left the Illinois River, you know, he you know, he moved down to that area, got into the decoy business and all that. But, but yeah, as far as, you know, when you get down here to the, you know, the Mid-South and the South, you know, um, like I say, Louisiana's got a culture of decoys. Yep. Um, but like I say, Arkansas and, you know, Arkansas and, um, you know, Tennessee, like I say, Missouri's got, you know, some, um, but, you know, mainly like I say, Arkansas, you know, there's none. There's nothing. Yeah, it's interesting. So I wonder, like, when did we start bringing in decoys and what were they? Were they herders or like we go back earlier than that? You know, that's that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about it in Arkansas, but you do hear stories of people from here that actually bought um, calls by... Um, I mean, not calls, excuse me, decoys that were from Illinois decoy decoy makers. So yeah. um, I know there's a guy here that owns some gra um, Graves decoys back in the day, and yeah. uh, there's a few Purdue, you know. So I don't really know what the time frame is uh, on that. But, you know, the biggest thing here, like I said, was flooded timber, and people called, kicked water, and had uh, right. painted Coke bottles, you know, yeah, <laughs> stuff that's a, like that. I always so. heard, like, milk jugs <laughs> yeah. painted black. Yeah, interesting. Well, anyway, so let's go back for those of the – Listeners that don't know who you are, let's kind of go back. Um, always ask new guests, like to tell us like your intro into duck hunting, and then into what well, let's go into call making and like collecting. So let's kind of give your your little history. Okay, well, I was obviously I was born in Stuttgart here, uh, which duck hunting and duck calling is a big deal. Big deal. Um, it's always fascinating to people that we actually have duck call clinics and classes, you know, as you're a kid to learn to blow duck calls. So, um, obviously with the world championship duck calling contest, it's just, it's just in our culture here. And growing up on the Grand Prairie, my dad is actually from Mississippi. Okay. Uh, he's from around Meridian, Mississippi. Okay. Uh, he met my mom at, uh, he was at Mississippi State. She was at MSCW back in the day in so Columbus. So that's how you got so. to Mississippi yep. State. Yeah. Um, so. I'm an Ole Miss fan. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so was my <laughs> wife. So. Oh, good. Yeah, she attended the University <laughs> of Mississippi. Uh, so it was, um, you know, he, he moved here to, to farm rice. And helped my granddad, who um, had cancer at the time. He actually graduated and uh, worked in Huntsville, Alabama at Redstone Arsenal for NASA. And he decided he didn't want to work in an office, so he moved here. Yeah. And so uh, just from that rice farm, that's just kind of growing up hunting with him and doing stuff. You know, yeah. that's kind of how I got into duck hunting. And it's just, there's not, it's not a glamorous story or anything yeah. normal. You know, when you're from Stuttgart, that's just kind of what you do. But right. um, probably when I was five or six, I was actually in a blind with him and another guy, and there wasn't much many ducks flying. And so uh, they gave me a duck call. I made a lot of racket. 
a duck came in that they shot. It was um, not coming in because of my calling, I promise you. <laughs> but, um, but you could at least lie and say to yourself and say it was. Yeah, well, I took a picture holding the duck and the duck call. Just I, From my memory, that was really what got me into it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I guess I felt like I participated in the hunt besides right. just going along. And, uh, man, I just I went on some hunts with him. He was real good about taking me and not making you sit too long or do whatever, you know, taking snacks, just making it fun. And then about the time I got old enough to, uh, we talked about the youth clinics here, Chick Majors, uh, who made duck calls in the uh, 40s and 50s, 60s, and on to the 70s, uh, passed on. He started the children's clinic here in Stuttgart then, and then he kind of okay. passed that on to Butch Rich and Beck, which I kind of took over from Butch after he okay. after he had passed away or got done doing them. And uh, we start in first grade. We have a beginners, then a semi-advanced and an advanced. So um, we do it. We start in October. It runs through Thanksgiving. I want to say it's like six to eight weeks long. We do it two times a, a week. Okay. And that's kind of how, how long are they each one? Uh, like an hour? Or? Uh, oh, Lord, no. Yeah, so say like <laughs> they can be long. They're no, so they're little. 20 minutes. And I, I, and I tell people, I said, that doesn't perfect. seem like long, but no, I that's promise perfect. you that's a long time because their have, attention span is not a whole lot of I got a six, a three, and a five month old. Yeah, that's uh, perfect. Yeah, and you get 20 of them in a room blowing duck calls. That's <laughs> <laughs> 20 minutes is, is good. all you need. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just going through that clinic, uh, that's how I got interested in the calling. And and like when I was in the second year of the semi-advanced, we'd have a little competition after uh, at the end of the year of each clinic. And so I was, and they kind of do it kind of like the world's where you blow three rounds and okay. all, doing all this. So one of the judges was Johnny Monfus, who was a world champion caller here at the time. Okay. And I would have had to be nine. And he's, he had told my parents that, Man, he's he's pretty good at calling. He should go take private lessons from butchers and back. And I didn't know anything about it. I've gone down to the contest yeah. and seen you know the world, but right. at that point I really didn't have that much interest because if you've been to a duck calling contest, it's not the biggest spectator sport in the world. No, it's not. It's pretty. <laughs> so it's at that age, you know, I didn't really watch a lot of it right uh, until after I got involved in it. So that's kind of how I started. Uh, once I got into doing the private lessons and competing in some of the contests in the junior world, I had family members that would like give me their old calls because I was competing in contests, yeah. you know, and stuff. And so, uh, and plus going over to Butch's, sitting there watching him turn calls, even at that young age, it was just really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew when I saw him turning calls that that's what I wanted to do, you know. Yeah. I didn't really know if it was a real job or anything. You don't really think about jobs at that age, but it's. I knew it was something I wanted to learn to do. Right. And I started making little hat pins over to shop and doing these different things. And uh, so through that and through Butch's, clinic and through working at his shop uh that's where like i said people started giving me old calls and i'm a natural collector so i was just you know i was collecting didn't really know what i was doing and uh by the time i got trying to think when it would have been 1986 is that when the call collectors thing was founded ryan or was it 85 or 86 I think it was 88 or 89. Okay, okay. okay. So somewhere Wait, around... Well, say what that is real quick, Ryan. Oh, the, uh, it's the, you know, the, it's the Call Collectors Association of America. Actually, at one point, there was like 25 collectors got together to, you know, just to form a, a group of people to, you know, to, to promote, you know, call collecting and call making. So um, during the, the festival, they would have like different tents set up with crafts and mm-hmm. things. And actually, one year they had a call collector's... Um, event mm-hmm. or t- tent and so uh, I had joined the call collectors association at that time 
I would have been 15 if that was in 88. And so Definitely I, I missed the youngest it. member of the well, Paul Collective What's cool is I missed it by one year. If I'd have known about year four, I could have been with the founding members, which yeah, would have kind of been cool. So, And I still got my certificate over there on the wall. So. Oh, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll take a picture. So um, that's when I went to that. I got to meet other call makers and they were like, bring your calls up here. So I went home and I remember getting all my calls and they gave me a table and I had like bath towels. My mom would have been so embarrassed. I had all my calls like, you know, displayed on bath towels from the house because I couldn't find anything else. And (laughs) they really got a kick out of it. And I met like Howard Harlan, some of these guys. And Mr. Howard was just coming out with his book around that time, the first book. Mm -hmm. It may actually been around then. There's Brian McGrath. I think I'm saying that. Yeah, that's about right because we were still publishing books because we published that. So that was really the first time that I'd even learned much about any other calls from outside. You yeah. know, when you're from Stuttgart, you think it all revolves around Stuttgart when you're that right. young, you yeah, know, and, and, or Arkansas. And so starting to learn about, man, they made calls in Illinois and, you know, all these other places, Tennessee. And uh, it was it was fascinating to me to know that there was other calls out there right. call makers. So that's really kind of how I got started in the the collecting and that mm-hmm. just it just steamrolled from there or snowballed from there and I was able to meet Biff Morgan um, okay. who's from Little Rock and he really was probably my mentor as a at a young age at collecting, collecting. yeah he was big Arkansas call um, collector and promoter of Arkansas calls he had a little section in the Arkansas Sportsman's Almanac that um, was put out I would say in the 90s uh, it was about different areas in Arkansas mm-hmm. hunting duck hunting but in the back they had a little section on calls okay. and I can remember when I looked through those pages I had no idea of all the different call makers from Arkansas there's so you know, many yeah. it's a- I knew a lot of them but there was so many like northeast Arkansas though, I, I've heard of Beckhart but at that time you know there wasn't right. the internet there wasn't all this, so you didn't have access to a lot of these things right. and so and these first no, books I were mean, huge yeah and the first well I mean Mike Lewis just put out the first strictly Arkansas one a few years ago. That wasn't even that long yeah, ago. Yeah, and, and, and you know, those are, that's a nice book. There's all these books just having the images, you know, and the pictures of seeing the calls. I mean, yeah. you hear people talk about them. Like I said, now you can Google it and find a picture right. of one. But yeah. back then you didn't. So those books, all my books were just worn completely out, you know, within a year just through looking at them. So when did you start like traveling around to see some more calls? Like, you know, you hear about collectors going to their other collectors' houses or, I mean, for calls, you can go to the collector at some at certain places. Did you do that at all at a young age? You know, there just wasn't still... As I guess I didn't know. I was young. So, yeah, right. I mean, you know, my parents, they were really good about taking me to compete in duck calling contests, but, you know, probably pushing the envelope to take me to a, yeah. an old man that collected duck calls house and leave me at that young age to right. look at calls. Yeah. But, um, you know, there there was, like I said, I met Biff Morgan, met Howard Harlan. Um, and at that time, the duck calling contest here, that was probably the biggest show I went to that actually had older calls. Right. Uh, but there was, there was a lot of people... Um, the, the Beret brothers from Arkansas bought and sold calls, and they used to put out a little, uh, like, mailing list or newsletter that when they would have calls for sale, um, and you could mail in your money and get... I mean, it's just crazy how that worked back then, you know, a list of calls. And, and if you go look at those lists now and see what <laughs> they were selling for... That's actually pretty advanced for them to have mail-in call yeah. list. <laughs> and it, I mean, the the prices were crazy. Like, if you knew that then, you would have bought everything they had, yeah, you know. know. But they were um, expensive then. But that's really... I mean, that and the newsletter at the time, that was just how I... The call, I say the newsletter, the Callmakers and Collector Association newsletter right. uh, had a lot of stuff in it. Um, but there was there was a few guys that I could go see, you know, and but it was mostly probably at duck calling contests, actually, if okay. anything at that young age and talking to them. But um, there just, there wasn't 
as much that I had access to at a younger age. The older I got, like through college, and then I kind of took a little break from collecting. I never really just quit, but once I purchased Rich and Tone, it yeah. just a lot of things changed for me. I mean, we were we were working calls, doing stuff, and um, you know, trying to figure out how to run a business and doing different things. And I never lost the interest in it. I just and I'm I don't sure know, we it, were a young dad at that point too, right? Like. That, I mean, as someone who has kids, yeah. that takes a lot out yeah. of you. Yeah. Uh, I still enjoyed it. I mean, you know, talking about calls, but just there was just a time where it just, I don't want to say I got burned out because that's what I did the whole time, but there was just, it was a different pressure level. Like you're saying, right. we're, we're trying to figure out, I guess, your job and how to, how to run it and do all this. Because see, I was still pretty young when we bought Rich and Tones. We had right. to figure out, Angie and I, you know, how we were going to, you know, make a living. Yeah. You know, I mean, it sounds good that we're going to make duck calls and make a living, but you have to really do it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of <laughs> things that change. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, calls, a call company would have been like a Haydale or bigger um, right. production call company. There wasn't many like custom call so manufacturers. So when did you get Rich and, when did you buy Rich and Tom? Uh, in 1999. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like, like, like Primos then. Yeah. Like, like was a there big was, one and- they were just, there was just a few that were starting to, try to make the step to the to um a bigger scale of sales and that would have been like mike keller um some of these other guys in that really didn't got out and sold to other to other right. uh stores and they started using cnc equipment and stuff and that's kind of how it how it got started well actually um ryan is uh about the time i started my interest started getting back into it and um and my head getting back into it and, and starting to enjoy it is when I really, I've, I, Ron and I's paths have crossed. We knew each other, but we really didn't know each other like we do now and, and talk about collecting. So that was really about the time that um, I started back into it heavier. Yeah. Was that 2000? And uh, it would have had it's to be like 2015 because it yeah. was not too long after Richard passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when, what, what was your collection at at that point, Ron? Um, I mean, all over the place. Yeah, you know, were you I had, still were you uh, focused on Illinois, or are you still kind of? Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, Illinois was always my you know direct focus. Like you know, like like John said, you know, like he was only going to collect Arkansas. Well, you know, means that I was from Illinois, I was only going to collect Illinois. Right. You know, then it got into you know, I'm only going to collect stuff from Marys that I hunted. You know, that didn't leave me any any room. So, um, you know, so you know, at that point, you know, I was. You know, I had um, really gotten close with them. You know, I fell up in Chicago and Bob Christensen that wrote the Duck Call of Illinois book, which would have been, which would have probably been seven or, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight years, you know, prior to that. And, you know, I had been um, getting calls from him for years. And like I said, most of those were Illinois calls. But okay, Illinois was always my focus. But, you know, um, you know, a good collector, you never, you know, no matter where it came from, something would come up, you know, I had to find a way to buy it. Right. So when you go back into collecting, like, so you're collecting and then you kind of take your break. And then when you start to go back in, how has your focus changed from that beginning of a collector? And then now you're back into it again. Have you like, what was your, what was your motivation at that point? And what were you thinking about? Uh, You know, I just think a lot of it, like I said, just from work standpoint, I just kind of took my calls, put them in my safe, never got them out and just nose to the grindstone work you know yeah. and I, when we got to the point to where it started to being a little more comfortable and angie always say it's never comfortable but uh mm-hmm. you know where our business is was more comfortable um I, I guess just from like different call forums and seeing people talking about calls i got my calls out one day and started going through them and and i started just realizing how cool the calls were and how much i kind of missed it you know and yeah. enjoyed it so um i just 
I don't want to say slowly because I don't hardly ever slowly do anything, but I got back into it and it, it ramped up. And, you know, I didn't really have as much of a focus as I was just excited to be back. You know, yeah. you know, like when you collect stuff and that, and just when I was getting them out, it's just like I just was backfilled with that passion that right. got me started. Yeah. So it was just exciting to get them out. And then, like I said, talking to Ryan with them and, um, you know, he he came down and saw some yeah, of my calls. he gets excited then, too. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and then, so, I mean, we just geeked out, you know, on each other's calls and that that was really what got me back to doing things. Yeah. So then I started trying to make a list, like you're saying, a focus of what I didn't have. You know, like if it was Arkansas or different areas and I was going to try to get those. And then I thought, well, you know, I, I really just, talking to different collectors and, and decoy collectors, I, my focus just kind of changed to, yeah, there are some important calls that I probably need from other areas, but I want to buy stuff that I like. You know, yeah. don't worry about so much about the other stuff. Just buy what you like. And if it's, um, I used to try to think if I had one Beckhart and one of these, you know, that's all I needed. Uh, if there's like two or three of one call makers that I like, why not try to purchase right. them? Because you want stuff that you like and you enjoy looking at. No, I agree with that. I do. I agree with that too. Because um, when I look at decoys and stuff, like there's certain decoys I love, but I love like the really folksy ones um, that don't really even look like ducks. But right. those are the ones that I kind of lean towards, like the Louisiana style ones that just kind of have that funky look to them. But um, yeah, I think you should just go with what you like. So I do have a question as someone who who like carves and like creates calls and turns calls. How has the old collectors influenced or actually first, how has being a call maker influenced your collecting? Um, so how is being a call maker? Like, so collecting? you know what you're do- like, cause you're turning calls and you see how they're made and you, you get, you know that like part of it. So how has that made you appreciate certain collectors over others? I, I think a lot of it is, um, like how you, how I would grade some of the older call makers of, to what I like is, um, a lot of it is really about, um, overall design, you know, kind of mm-hmm. almost like overall sculptural, appeal of the mm-hmm. calls. That's probably my number one thing is looking. Um, I got, I have some in here. John Morrow is one of my favorite call oh, makers yeah. just because the, the his call, his calls are so sculpture-esque kind of to mm-hmm. me and it's not like they're fancy, intricate. They're just, his balance and design was so, it so good. It has a really interesting form to it. Yeah, it's a really pretty form. So, yeah. so to me, that's that would be my first draw and then um, just the craftsmanship you know, side, when you look at like Beckharts and uh, mm-hmm. Ferguson's and the way they did stuff, I mean, it's really amazing that they, how they made stuff with yeah. the tools that they had at that time. Yeah. Um, so that would be one. And then and then when you talk about the folk art side, um, obviously decoys and duck calls are all a form of folk art, but the ones that are really folky are, are yeah. you know, are really good. And I always say Charles Perdue is not necessarily my favorite call maker or favorite decoy maker but he's probably my favorite waterfowl folk artist because he made all kind of things oh, you know yeah. and that was and his owls like, no one thinks talks about his owls but his owls are really cool too. Yeah, yeah he does he made a lot of you know unique stuff mm-hmm. and so i think i think that i have that approach as far as collecting mm-hmm. and i think it works vice versa making calls also um being a collector definitely influences the way i make calls mm-hmm. or the style that i make calls and i you know, I'm a firm believer that there's probably not a hundred, there's uh, not a hundred, there's not many original ideas anymore on things, but oh, it's, no. it's, but it's how it, it's your influence is how you interpret the influences that you've had and how you can use that and develop something, you know, that's right. a, maybe a little different, but um, it kind of has your own flair to it, but also has the influences that you've had right. through there. And that's, and that's kind of how I look at call making that it has just broadened my palette, I guess, of the ideas I can have by, if I didn't have the 
experience or the um, background of studying old calls, I think if my call making style would be totally different. Right. Know? Yeah, that's almost an interesting thought experiment to think of like where you'd be if you didn't collect to. You know, well, we will never know. We'll never uh, know. No, we but always, it would be really interesting. I to always know. tell people if my mom and dad would have stayed in Birmingham, Alabama, or Huntsville, Alabama, you know, if I would be a duck call maker, I'd probably be like a skateboarder and probably never <laughs> shot a shotgun. But it also, there's something about when something's in you, it's going to come out yeah, eventually. You I know, feel so you. Like, I don't know if I'd be here if I didn't grow up in Tallahatchie County. So right. yeah, I'm sure Ron has the same thing. It's interesting you, you talk about like, yeah, like the way, I mean, I think that in art in general, like as an art history per- person, like I don't ever think there ever was originally an original idea. I think we've always just taken what we've seen and then combined it in our own interpretation. And I think it'll, you know, there'll always be new things like in air quotes, but they'll still be like, eventually somebody will be taking your stuff. And some like the older calls would be putting it together and coming up with new stuff. You guys already have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. talk about your like the jay stevens calls because um we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast with call ma- with decoy makers like you kind of have two camps of modern of contemporary decoy makers you have the guys like cameron mcintyre and marty hansen and george drunk and all these guys like that and um mcnair that are doing it strictly to the old way and that's kind of like and then there's these guys that are kind of like doing it with they're doing a little bit different more like factory wise and and they kind of have very different beliefs on the quality. You know, there's such a big camp on each side of what 
people think is good and whatever. But call making, there's lots of incredibly talented call makers out there still calling, but you're one of the only ones doing it the old way. And why why did you decide to start? When did you start, Jay Stevens? And when did you like start to go that? Um, you know, I don't know. I'm first. I'm not going to say I'm the only person doing it the old way. There's there's still lots the of people making. Well, you know that make them by hand. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there's still a lot of people that do that on the lathes and stuff. I think my style maybe be more leaning to yeah, the older okay. looks of calls, you yeah. know, and feels. And um, I think again that falls back to the collecting side and the history side. And one of the things I tried to do in everything from our tap room here to to some of our calls we do on RT is try to promote the history of calls or call making mm-hmm. through different things. So that was one of the things with Jay Stevens too, just because I liked the looks of older calls right. that I wanted to try to do that, but also include some history so people could get familiar with uh, the Batley I make is um, it doesn't really look like a call made by Batley, but he was the first guy to really right. wrap a call that we, so that we know of. Like, so that those, somebody will see that and then be like, oh yeah, you know, get interested in that and learn a yeah, little, a cool. little bit more about that. But um so I kind of didn't really answer your question and almost kind of forgot what it was. <laughs> I kind of went around uh, about way of asking. But yeah, like I do like that you do that. Like kind of you're almost like force people to learn about the older stuff, which is really cool because I don't think people think about, you know, there are people like us who collect and are into history. Like we think about that stuff all the time. Like it's just in us to think, Ryan's definitely one of them, to like think about where things came from and what was before that. But it's nice to have a way to have, to get other people involved that necessarily don't have that, like that history love in them to like, just naturally go there. Cause I mean, I'm going to go there every time. Like I want to ask that question, but anyway, but yeah, I want to know like how, um, with Jay Stevens, when did you start Jay Stevens first? Oh, um, you know, I should know that. <laughs> I want to say it was 2015, too. That's kind of when a lot of that started. Or 2016, I'm sorry. Okay. I won a champion champions in 2015. Okay. And that was the same year that um, Butch had passed away. He passed away earlier that year, like in uh, June or July, the summer of that. And so, kind of the same thing with him. I'd always made calls by hand, toyed around with it in my shop or garage, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, not so much at R&T, but did that actually before I had purchased R&T. I've got some calls that I made when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and carved acorns on them and did little things like that, um, but not a lot. And so I started Jay Stevens in 2016, and it was kind of the same way Butch did. He'd learned from Chick Majors, but he did not want to start making his own calls until um, Chick had, was done, you know, okay. and, and it... Chick had passed away about the time Butch was starting to make his calls. And so Butch had passed away that um, summer. And then not long after that, we had a fire and our right. building burned down. So, I mean, you say start from scratch. I mean, that was the best time to start it, I guess. And so, um, you know, that's that's kind of how I did it. And we, it's funny because it kind of went in reverse order. Like when we purchased R&T, we had to figure out how to run a business on a larger scale. And the whole reason that I got into call making was because I actually like making calls. You know, I like doing it by hand. And so we got to the point to where our business at that point was more of a um, well-oiled machine kind of thing. You know, I I could take time to do it. So as we were building this new shop, I just thought that would be the ideal time to do it. And that way, when people come in here too, they could see how R&T is built, like today's type of calls, and then how they were made by hand right. through Jay Stevens. So you kind of got the best of both worlds. And it works great for me because that's why I got into doing this because I wanted to make calls. So I get to do that and then still, you know, making the living with R&T. So yeah. it's, um, it's, it's been fun. And, you know, the, 
the thing when I started doing the Jay Stevens calls is I didn't want uh, to take orders, and I just wanted to make what I wanted to make, and don't worry about if anybody likes it. And I take them to the show and sell it, and you know I didn't want because I had a job that we take orders for calls, right. so I didn't want it to ever like impede on creativity or you know be where you were so rushed. And uh, I made the mistake of start taking orders, <laughs> and uh, which I just do it at our Callapalooza VIP events. But okay. um, I, we would have like thirty people a night for two nights, and we would allow them to come in here and place an order. And that's what's sitting in front of y'all—about two years worth of orders. That's probably closer to three. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've gotten caught up a little bit, but uh, and it's not that it's a lot of calls. I'm just not very productive, and I don't mean that in a bad way. But uh, people don't understand if I was all I did was sit in here then I could knock them out. But I might could start on something, then I have to start and do something somewhere right. else with, you know, R&T because that's what pays the bill. So, um, yeah. and I also don't want it to get to where this well, is a burden. You got a duck hunt too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's priority. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I don't want it to get to where this is a burden at all. Not right. that my other job is, but I just want to be able to do do this when I can and, right. and still enjoy it. So No, I, I totally feel that. I was an art major for all of one year and I hated it because I didn't like being told what to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I get it. So, yeah, yeah you want to be able to keep that creativity like, there's no pressure on it. Yeah. yeah. So this is probably, um, this will probably be the last ones that I actually take orders on. I, I don't think we're going to do that at the uh, VIP events anymore. So speaking of Callapalooza, can you tell us what that is and how many years it's been? Uh, we started that on our grand opening. So that would have been 2019 when we opened the okay. new shop. Um, we just wanted to try to have an unveiling of the new shop. And we were just spitballing ideas of what could we do else besides just say, hey, we're open for business. And so we thought, man, let's invite as many call makers to come and set up here, sell their calls, do whatever. And that just kind of evolved until saying, hey, let's make it like a celebration of the art of call making and like have seminars, have classes, um, have collectors come and trade and swap calls. And so basically it's a week-long celebration of call making, you know, oh, from different amazing. things. So it's uh, it's really grown. Uh, the first year we came out of the shoot was pretty good and then COVID hit. So, yeah. you know, like everything else, it, it kind of slowed for a year or two. But last year was our best year ever. And uh, we've got a lot of things cool plan for this year. So that's that's been a um, exciting event and something that we're proud of because we, you know, that's what we try to do is promote not just collecting, but call making. And some people say, why do you want to promote call making when you're a call maker? You know, and I, I don't, I don't view it as competition. Uh, right, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a competitive person. Right. I, I mean, I like to win, but this, <laughs> this is not about that. This is about kind of supporting uh, art or craft that's, right. I mean, giving me a lot, you know, and so, and it's a, a very big part of the Grand Prairie, so, uh, and Arkansas, you know, call making, yeah. and, and in other parts of the country too, as we talk, but so we want to get as many people as we can involved and show them how to do it, and, you know, that's one of the things with the Call Makers and Collectors Association, you know, they're really involved in that. Okay. Um, so, and we have a Call Makers build-off contest through the week that we have here where Call Makers go against each other and building calls, and uh, so it's, a, it's a fun time. calls and stuff? For yeah. Your, oh, that's yeah. Fun. So, it, it's a fun event. Yeah, so, let's go back to, um, like, contemporary Call Makers. So, has, 
I feel like it's like increased, but has it increased or has it stayed steady? I think it's definitely increased um, just because of technology and information. Okay. You know, it's so much more accessible now than it used to be just because of the internet. You know, I mean, you can, I mean, I'm the world's worst now about calling anything I don't know. That's the first thing I do is type it in my phone. You know, what, how do I do this? How do I, you know? Well, there's the Facebook group. What's that Facebook group that they're always on there? Oh, there's call nuts. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, So so I think there is, and, and you brought up a, Interesting question earlier, talking about the way or my style of making calls compared to to um, other yeah, calls. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, and I, I keep bringing this up, but I think it has to do with your influences and your background mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, a lot of the guys, there's some very, very, very talented guys that make calls that I mean, blow carve stuff that just blow my mind when you look at them, um, and they're it's really cool to see how they do these intricate carvings. Then you got guys that make calls that look more like today's calls. I don't mm-hmm. know if it makes sense. Yeah, you know, contemporary uh, yeah. acrylic. And yeah. I think it's because, I, I bet when you go back and look, these guys that carve, they have some kind of influence or history from carving at some point mm-hmm. or some kind of artistic, you know, draw or background from that. Yeah. Uh, the guys that make calls that when they say all today's kind of calls, which would be R&T included, kind of look similar. Probably because most of those guys, that's all they really known or have been around. Right. So, like with me, I've been around the older ones, you know, a lot yeah. too. And so that's kind of what influences those. And to me, it separates. I mean, I want to make what I like, but it also separates the look compared to. Yeah. Stuff. So I brings up a question in my mind, like, and Ron, you might have a thought about this too, but like access to the older calls, like, I mean, if you're a collector and you work with other collectors, you know, you get to see more calls because especially if you're like going to things like Hall Blues or, or the Chicago, the decoy show in Chicago, you get to see and handle older calls. But I mean, besides here and at the Pyramid, there's not many places the general public can go and look at old calls. It's yeah. just... No, really, I say, yeah, there's really, really not. And like, you know, we, we always try to get more and more people into the vintage side of the hobby, but you know, as collectors, um, you know, I'm guilty of it myself, you know, like, you know, it's, it becomes like an addiction and you need a fix. And, you know, with old calls, you know, like you just can't go get a fix anytime you want to go with a contemporary call or a custom made call, you know, you can, um, you can get them just, you know, about any time you want to, you know, from, from somebody. Right. You know, so it's like, you know, the, the, the vintage calls just aren't as readily available. And like I say, it's just, you know, like, you just kind of, you know, as a collector, you just always got to be, you know, I don't really collect uh, contemporary stuff, but, you know, as far as, you know, vintage calls goes, like, you know, I've got most of the cards that I want, like, so, like, but I still have the, you know, I've still got that urge, so, I mean, I've been collecting baseball cards, you know, that, that's just basically just to fill that void of, you know, like, there hasn't been any old calls to come to market that I have to have, you know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, you just have to have a, and, you know, and that's what, you know, um, keeps a lot of people from getting into the, the vintage calls. Like, you know, they just, they want, you know, we just, you know, the society anymore is just, they need instant gratification. And with, you know, you, with, you know, vintage calls, you know, you just can't always get instant gratification because they're not just not always available. Yeah. And I think it would have an influence on the makers as well, because they're not getting to have that experience. You know, we always talk about that with new collectors. Like if you want to get into collecting, like one of the most important things is to hand like go to shows and handle calls or handle decoys so you can get familiar with them so um to better know them and understand them yeah shows are definitely um one of the better ways to do it and meet collectors uh we we're trying here to do a, a call makers and collectors social we do once a month and that's the intentions you know 
behind it is to introduce people and to collect and come. Or even if you want to make calls, you know, there'll be some of us here that'll help you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, our little classroom up here, people display whether it's calls that they make to sell or, you know, I'll bring some older calls that, um, that people just handle. to let, yeah, and do that, you know, and try to get people interested in it. Uh, one of the, I think the most important things you can do, obviously, is read. You know, read as much as you can about stuff. Try to learn. Um, old auction catalogs are a great piece too, a tool to, to learn stuff by. And then try to try to get a mentor, you know, try to find an older collector. Um, they don't have to be older, an experienced collector. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that They're mostly older. But right, yeah. <laughs> right. That, you know, that you, that is, that's, you know, or somebody recommends, you know, that's um, not that everybody's not trustworthy, but somebody that's interested in it for the same reasons you are and can help you, you know, and show you calls of their collection, right. help you figure out what, what to buy and what to get into because it is intimidating. If you want to get into something and you know not a lot about it and you see these prices and then you hear about somebody buying a call that's maybe it's, you know, pieced together, not original or this or that. There's a lot of things that can be discouraging, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a collector. Um, so that's, that's one of the best things I know to do because there's, you know, there's still people, um, not by any means do I know that much about them, but um, there's, you know, there's people that I learn from still today and I've been around it for a long time. I mean, I've been around it longer than Ryan, and I learned stuff from Ryan. Uh, I don't like to admit that. But, um, you know, so there's, it's, that's one of the cool things about gathering with other collectors yeah. is, you know, you always seem to learn something. And and one of, uh, not to cut you off, but one thing is people ask about that, about buying older calls and spending that money in there. Mm-hmm. Try to always, two things, try to buy the best quality that you can afford, I okay. guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, and somebody, as actually was a decoy collector, told me, said, if you're on uh, a one to ten scale, always try to purchase eight, nines, and tens because okay. when you have to get rid of them or trade them or if you sell them, it's a lot easier to get rid of those eight, nines, and tens than it is four, five, and sixes. You know, it's easy to say because I don't have this duck call and this one's messed, not messed up, but maybe cracked or something, and it's a lot more affordable. You want to get it because you don't have this call maker or whatever. But if you wait around and save up your money, and you know, maybe you're not going to be able to buy like. 20 calls at one time, but maybe you okay. buy one call a year, but make that one really, really good, you know, or the best that you can afford. Okay. And I think that that, that helps a lot. Yeah, that's interesting because we've talked about, I guess with other, this is mostly with decoy collectors though. So I think it doesn't always go the same for different, you know, but they always talk about like maybe um, buying something, you can buy more affordable things to then trade up. Is there a level to that? Like, you can do that, but then, like you're saying, like some won't be harder to get rid of to do that, well, that trade I, up. So. I think that now this is totally my interpretation of that, but maybe what they're saying is if there's a decoy that's um, say is worth five hundred dollars, yeah, but it's a eight, nine, or ten of that maker, and five hundred is its you know upper range, then that's what I would buy, and you would have you would trade maybe two or three of those for a better one. You know, yeah, that you still okay. get better, get the best quality of that maker that you can afford. And then you may, you know, and they may not be that valuable. Like take, um, oh, I'm trying to think of on the, like uh, Madison Mitchell, his decoys mm-hmm. are probably more affordable than a lot of other ones. Right. So maybe you get higher quality of those that would still cost you less money than um, a Charles Perdue, you know, early Charles right. Perdue. But then you, it might just take you four or five to either trade or sell later to get that one. Okay. You know, yeah, like that. That's that the way sense. I look. I don't know if that's the way no, they I meant like, it. I like that. Actually, it kind of clears, it makes it a little more clear actually than like just saying it the other way. That makes more sense to me. And that's how I, that's how I built my entire collection. Yeah. You know, um, when I, when I started off, like, you know, I had aspirations of, you know, collecting, you know, the higher end stuff, but you know, I, you know, I'm a school teacher. So, you know, I mean, I don't have, 
you know, <laughs> tons of extra money to spend on calls. So, you know, my collections always had to pay for itself. So, you know, that's exactly what I did. You know, I mean, I would buy, you know, I mean, I've probably got 400 calls, but, you know, the, the, I mean, I've sold thousands of calls to be able to have the 400 that I've got, you know, and I just always invested everything back in into my collection. Yeah, I think that's just kind of the evolution of collecting. Like, especially yeah. if you look at my collection now, instead of having, you know, I, I bet at one time I probably had 800 duck calls. Now I probably have 300 oh, wow. or so, and the 300 are, are a lot better quality overall than that 800 was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would buy collections of, you know, 50, 60 calls, you know, to get one call. But, you know, I would do that, and, you know, I would spend the next two years, you know, um, you know, piecing out the rest of it to pay for the... <laughs> You know, to pay for the one call that I got. Yeah. But, you know, and, and that, adds a, that, adds a, that adds an element to, you know, collecting as well, you know, to, you know, because, you know, by doing that, you know, you're, um, you know, just, you know, I might have had like um, three or four Cedar Purdue's or something, you know, and they might have been, you know, a two or three out of a 10, you know, I would sell those to get the 10, but, you know, when it was a revolution, you know, I was selling the twos and threes to somebody else that was more than likely going to be doing the same thing that I did. Okay. Well, you know, hopefully that was always getting you know, more people involved in it. So no, it makes it it makes it clearer though. Like I like spelling like using the examples like that. It makes it clear because when people say that, I don't think it's necessarily clear to someone who doesn't really have experience mm-hmm. in it, and that, that makes it a little mm-hmm. clearer to me. Um, hey, well, Ryan, do you have a question for John? Since I mean, you've been on this call the whole time. Like, do you have a question that you would want to ask? You know, I mean, there's, I know that right now, you know, there's a lot of, you know, guys trying to get, you know, involved in, uh, in, in vintage collecting. Like, I mean, do you have any advice for, you know, these new collectors other than, you know, just, you know, we've always kind of went by the motto of quality over quantity, but uh, is there any other advice you could give to, you know, to these newer collectors? Man, I mean, we were kind of talking about that a little bit earlier, you know, re- uh, reading, obviously, um, the auction catalogs, but going to events uh-huh. and, and finding mentors is the is the best to me, you know, and talk to other people that, um, you know, when you're, let's say, selecting your mentors, it's not hard to, once you go to a few yeah. shows, you yeah. see who you fit in with and who's, you know, you, what, what stuff you like. You know, and collectors love when other people, you know, that are showing interest in what they've got a passion for. A hundred percent. You know. Yeah, so don't ever know, be like, too intimidated to walk up to people and yeah, ask them exactly. questions because you know when I was when I was in high school there was or later high school, you know, in Ducoin, Illinois, you know, I was from Southern Illinois, there was a big decoy collector, Harvey Pitt in Ducoin and, you know, he was an older guy. I was, you know, rather intimidated to, you know, to go over there. But you know, I somebody told me that he welcomed people. So you know, after sixteen I drove to his house, you know, and just and just knocked on his front door and he comes to the door and, and you know, sir, I'd like to look at your decoy collection, you know, and, and he was just, he was just, you know, ecstatic that I wanted to do that. But, but, you know, like John said on the mentors, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had so many myself, you know, like, you know, Bob Christensen being one of the ones, but, you know, I used to go visit, you know, collectors, you know, and, you know, I can't say that I've ever, um, and, you know, when I started out collecting that I ever called, you know, a, a veteran collector and, you know, they, you know, at first, you know, you know, you know, they kind of fill you out, and they want to know what you know what you're after. Um, but when they saw that you, when you legitimately take an interest in it, I mean, you know, they will open up the doors for you. You know, I mean, I used to, I used to go to collectors' houses, you know, all the time. Like, um, but like I say, I mean, you know, but the, you know, the key thing is, you know, is to show an interest. You know, if you find an old duck call, and you know, and all you're after is the, is the find, um, you know, want them to tell you exactly what it is and what they ask for it and all that. You're, um, you know, you're probably not going to get real far, but if you if you show a keen interest in it, you know, 
absolutely everybody will want to help. Right. Ask questions. Like, don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. Just ask questions because it's important. Yeah, just stay in time, too. Like, um, you know, it, it's, it's it, asking questions is a good thing, you know, because, you know, anymore there's a lot of calls out there that are pieced together. There's a lot of calls out there that are um, completely counterfeit. And, you know, the worst thing you can do is, is, is to be, you know, head over hills into the hobby and, and, and save up a bunch of money and buy something and then later find out that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all that's going to want you to do is, is to get out of the hobby. And, and that's not what we want. So I have a question, actually. So there's always been a really vibrant way of buying decoys, like either through auction and things like that. Whereas calls, it's a lot less so. So where, besides like the few auctions they have, the little bit of calls in, where are new collectors going to buy these calls? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the, 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 what I found out early on is like, you know, I was, um, you know, I would get the, the call collector's newsletter and I would go to, um, in the back or, um, I forget which one, I guess it was that when you would get like a yearly deal to show you who all the members were. And I would just go through it and I'd start calling people. Um, but, you know, and that's how I found calls. And, and unfortunately with calls like... That Ryan Graves boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm no, I can guarantee it. You know, they find out after a while and that's how I was able to start buying calls. I always tell everybody, you know, somebody might have had a thousand decoys, but they only had one duck call. So there's never going to be many old duck calls for sales or as decoys. And they can have three or four decoy auctions a year and, you know, and, and not have any calls because they're just not available. So if you just sit and wait for auctions and, you know, it's, it, you're going to be disappointed. So, you know, just, it, it, it's a lot of legwork, you know, like, you know, um, you know, I know John did the same thing with, you know, with Biff Morgan and other collectors, you know, just contact older collectors, you know, everybody, whether you're a collector or not, everybody's still got something they'll sell. John now, like if somebody were to, Say you know I really want an old duck call. Like you know, he, you know he'll go through his collection. And he can find one that he'll part with. You know, I mean, so it's just well, that's nice. Not everyone's that way though. <laughs> and and shows too. I mean, even like Real Foot used to be a good one that we would get. You know, you could buy calls from other collectors at. Um, okay. We hope Callapalooza will be. Um, Jason Furlow used to have a show, and I guess I don't know if he still has it in Decoin or if it's moved. Yeah, COVID kind of got in the way of that. Yeah. And hopefully, it'll so a lot of these shows have kind of changed because of that. But that you know, those there was actually some duck call shows, uh, not a lot, but you know, three or four a year that were good ones to go okay. to too. And right now, you know, and to be honest, like the the age when it comes to collecting vintage duck calls and stuff, you know, it, it's very top heavy. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, me and John are in our forties, like. You know, we're probably two of the youngest vintage call collectors out there um, that are, you know, seriously into the the, the higher end stuff. And and the, most of the ones that the, the larger collections are the guys in your, you know, sixties, seventies, and eighties. So, you know, we're you know, there's not that there's not any in between there, but we need to start really working on you know um, doing that backfill. You know, getting you know getting more into the hobby, right? Because um, you know. You know, before too long, you know, there'll, 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 be, there'll be things that come available. And I think you and I talked about this before, Ryan. Like, you know, it's, it's usually not a... I mean, you had a different... You did it the, you did it a way where you could collect them. But it's usually an older man's game just because of the financial reasons. Because it's not always the easiest to get into. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not. And like I said, I, I think I told you then, like, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there's no way, like... I mean, you know, it would, I'm not going to say there's no way. It'd be very hard for me to have what I've got now if I started today because, you know, back then, like, you know, I mean, I remember sitting in my dorm room at Western Illinois in like 98, 99, and, you know, I would write on my hand. That was like when eBay came out, you know, and like <laughs> I had to be back at my room 
at 6.45 because an auction went off at 7.30 because it would take me, even in my dorm room, it would take me 20 minutes for dial-up to get on the internet, you know, then to sit there and just wait, you know, and you can, there there is none of that anymore. It's, you know, everybody's got a smartphone, everybody's got the eBay apps, you know, and, you know, back then there used to be stuff that showed up all the time. Nobody knew what it was and there wasn't a, there wasn't an avenue for people to, you know, like Facebook and message boards and right. and all that for people to discuss it. So, you know, I was, I, I just got into it at the right time, you know, so to speak. But like say, I mean, but the thing is too, like, you know, if I always say, no, my, I mean, collecting's work. I mean, it, it's a lot of work, you know, I mean, I've put a lot of work, John's put a lot of work in his collection. It's just that, you know, if you want it, anything you want, you can, you can make it happen, you know, just hard work. <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree with that. I kind of want to go back because we mentioned your mentor before, but can you speak on Biff Borgen, right? Like, can you speak on him a little bit and that what that how that influenced you? Yeah, actually, I met Biff through uh, my wife Angie. Her parents were friends with um, a banker here in Stuttgart, and Biff was a banker in Little Rock. And so Biff traveled the state. I I don't remember what the name of the bank was he worked for, but um, he obviously traveled a lot, visiting other banks, and so. Angie's parents, I guess they were talking about collecting duck calls and he was saying how big of a collection he had. So he wanted to meet me. And um, after that, we just hit it off good as far as um, I would have been, I'd have been probably college when I met him. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd have been in the 90s. He just helped me as far as, that's about the time the Sportsman's, Arkansas Sportsman's Almanac came out and his calls were in the back. Mm -hmm. I'd go over to his house in Little Rock and then we got to, um, there was a restaurant in North Little Rock called Fisher's that was, uh, I'd go at least once a month and meet him over there. And he would bring either some calls that he had found, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or was, was selling. And his big thing was, he would always ask me, you know, who made this or that? Like, it would be like a little pop quiz you had. <laughs> and then he would, um, he was big on trading for calls that he didn't have, you know? Okay. So, like, he would want me to look in this area to try to find calls and then we'd meet up and either swap calls or, you know, if didn't, you know, he might would buy one that I had or vice versa. And he was more into, he wanted to have one of every call from Arkansas. That was kind of his, his deal. So, uh, man, he was, he was a great, a great help to me, you know, on that. And, um, because I can remember when I went to his house the first time, and he would also travel around to like different civic organizations in the state and promote calls. And he was one of the first guys that I really knew that, that did that. Like he might come to Stuttgart and give a speech to the Lions Club about collecting calls. You know, and he'd have a, these little travel cases that he'd bring his calls. And oh, that was the first time I'd ever seen a um, Our Green Ferguson duck call. Like I didn't even know those existed. And like yeah. to, to me, that's that's like the pinnacle of Arkansas yeah. calls. You know, so. I really got to see a lot of cool calls from him, and he really helped me as far as um, trying to understand how to collect, um, like getting out and trying to find stuff, you know, from right. other people. Um, so that was, it was really, it was a fun time because it wasn't, like when I started, duck call collecting was kind of new, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it wasn't that new, but it, it it's not like it is now. No, yeah. And so when I had met Biff, it was starting to get even more, uh, ramped up, but there was still a lot of stuff out there that was available. Right. And, um, it was, it was, it was neat. He was a good bridge to the gap from some of these older call makers, you know, and, and me being a younger call maker as far as talking and visiting with it, with them and learning stuff. So he was a, a really, really big help. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you spec hunted at all? I have. I have. have? Yeah, I, yeah, I spec hunted. I've never really done the early season until this year just because really? usually yeah, we just have either. so much going on that we don't. But uh, I was going to make a point to do it. And so I got all my stuff ready in time. And um, I'm still working on 
some duck blinds that we need to get oh, ready. Yeah. And hopefully we we'll have time. that this week. When do y'all open this weekend? No, it's uh, the 19th, I believe. So not this week, but the next weekend. Okay. So. Yeah, because y'all usually open before Thanksgiving, then close and open after mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Yeah, so I have yeah. been able to go spec hunt maybe three or four times, and it's it's been fun. I mean, I hate to admit it, the first day it didn't fire a shot. That makes you, it makes you feel kind of bad when you're a call maker and supposed to know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but we just really, being as dry, we didn't have, we did not have the specs around. You know, they were concentrated in reservoirs that had water, but they would get up out of our reservoir and go everywhere but on our property, I think. Well, you know, well, so you know what happens. The next day we adjusted <laughs> and just set up between where they were getting up and where they were wanting to go and we were able to talk a few of them into coming in so it's, it's, that's it was fun. fun yeah that's fun Ryan when do y'all open for Tennessee oh we open um, you know Kentucky opens Thanksgiving Day then Tennessee opens on um, that Saturday yeah so um, before Thanksgiving so. yeah yeah alright well thank you both for coming on the show yeah enjoy right. it thanks for asking talk to y'all next time Thanks again, Ron and John, for coming on the show. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac, and thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.